everyone, how are you doing today? It's Freddy here and welcome to another episode of Northern Bibliosphere, a space where we celebrate all things books from about and in the north of Scotland. So, are you ready to go wild today? Our guest is the Helen-born playwright Jenna Watt, who has just published her first non-fiction book, Hindsight. So, uh, I have been in the Helens for a few years now, but it was only recently that I have been made aware of the issues that relate to the landscapes, which we perceive as wild and beautiful, and we feel a certain sense of sublime while we visit those places. But these empty spaces are, in fact, a product of a certain type of land management that has been happening through history and a variety of other reasons. And Jenna, who has a master in sustainable rural development, digs into this topic and more uh, from many different perspectives in the book. If you're a fan of all things rewilding, nature conservation and the conversations around these topics, this book is for you. But also, if you're a newbie to the issue, much like myself, hindsight is a great first step to get an idea of the big picture around the conservation movement in Scotland. And today we're going to talk about deer stalking, a variety of projects aiming to restore plant and animal species and ecosystems in general in the Highlands and other parts of Scotland. We touch base on ecofeminism and the role of artists in helping creating a dialogue between the different parts, uh, and as well as history and ecological grief. There is a lot to learn and I assure you after this book you will be left with the urge to learn more about all things wilderness and land management and rewilding. So please welcome to our show Jenna Watt. Hello Jenna, how are you doing? Welcome to Northern Bibliosphere. Hi, thanks for having me. I'm very well. (laughs) Awesome. So well, uh, we are here today to talk about your latest book, Hindsight. It's your first non-fiction book uh, because your background is in theatre. So I wanted to maybe give it a start, starting to talk about about your background, how you got into theatre and uh, yeah, where you come from before this book. Yeah, of course. So uh, yes, I've I've worked in theatre since, oh my goodness, uh, I don't want to put a date on it, but I'll say 2010, it's maybe a bit longer than that. And um, I've predominantly been making work as a theatre maker which is a term that for me encompasses all the different roles that I take on whether that's directing, dramaturgy, um, facilitation but also uh, writing, so playwriting as well. Um, Oh and devising I suppose. So um, I guess the thing to say would be that Hindsight started its life as a piece of theatre because I was on a thing called an artist attachment with an Edinburgh-based company called Magnetic North, um, where I was attached to them, I think it was about 18 months. Um, And with them, I was trying to find ways to integrate um, the topics and concerns that I'd learned learned about um, on my master's that I did. Um, I was integrating that into my artistic practice at the time. So, while I was on attachment I went and did the hind stock uh, which I'd never done before and I went through this process of finding somewhere to do that uh, and went off and did it and then Magnetic North have a a kind of uh, I guess it's a residency um, 
or like a lab week almost where they bring together um, different practitioners and artists and, and actors as well to explore an idea. So I was fortunate enough to be given the opportunity to work with some performers and I started, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I just started with the stock that I'd just been on. I'd been on that two months before. Um, so started exploring what that story might look like if it was staged um, and we had three performers and then uh, and then lockdown happened <laughs> so that stopped the theatre journey for that piece at that time um, and then what came about was I was asked if I would consider writing a book about the same the same topic and it kind of went from there no, oh, that's grand. And uh, I'm really wondering how your passion for these topics ignited, because, of course, in the book, you mention uh, reading Feral, which uh, was possibly one of the kickstarters of that passion. But I'm wondering if before maybe that and a few other things that uh, you might want to talk about afterwards, but they're in the book. So I want to just give the spoilers that you want to give. <laughs> but uh, um can I ask how was your relationship with nature <laughs> and uh, the themes of rewilding and the deer to stock before having those life-changing experiences? So I guess um, growing up in the Highlands, I was very fortunate that my parents would take me uh, out a lot um, and we'd go for walks in various places. We quite often go down to the Kieran Gorms or go up to Garve or um, over to other areas in the Black Isle. Loch Ness, that was my favourite place to go. Um, Urquhart Castle and Doors. Um, so I was quite um, familiar with, with um, that area of the Highlands and how, I guess, it felt or what it did for me to be in those places as a young person. Like, I really valued those trips. And, and I kind of just grew up thinking, well, this is just what the Highlands look like. And because I didn't, I hadn't been around long enough to see any like significant ecological change, which improved biodiversity, I'll say. I witnessed lots that, that um, degraded habitats. And um, like with Inverness, uh, the population increasing exponentially and, and the changes that brought about. But I just kind of accepted the Highlands um, as it was and what it looks like. And then I, actually, after I did a, a show at the Fringe called Faz Lane, um, which is looking at how divisive um, the topic of trident and nuclear armament is in a Scottish context and a global context, I needed a break. <laughs> so I decided to take myself off to the Northwest Highlands, which I hadn't actually been to before, and um, like the, the, the North North northwest not just like Alapool or much further north and um I just I just became really aware of the the landscape up there and, and started to question what I was actually looking at and it was partly because I went to Cape Wrath and um, which if anyone who goes to Cape Wrath knows you have to get the little passenger ferry over the water and then you get put on a wee tour bus and the guides are like phenomenal and funny and uh, knowledgeable. But the biggest thing about Cape Wrath is that it's owned by the MOD, the Military of Defence. So I just come off the back of doing Fazling, which is all about the military and, um, and the forces. And then I was suddenly on this piece of land that 
I'd always interpreted as being uh, a wilderness um, and this, you know, this was, it was bleak, but this is what Scotland's like. This is, this is our landscape. And then, and then I found out that, oh, hang on, the MOD on this. What does that mean then? You know, and it, it means it's, it gets shelled. Uh, they fire um, missiles onto it from the sea. And, um, but they have a massive herd of deer that um, are on that, uh, that land, so uh, Cape Wrath sort of area. But then they have a lighthouse and I love lighthouses. And, and then there's a bothy that people can go to, but they have to manage people that, that come onto that land. So they, it just sort of raised lots of questions around it. And then, you know, we're going all around that area and, and uh, like around Loch Erebol and just noticing like, wow, everywhere there's there's a lot of lot of heather and peat, isn't there? There's a lot, a lot of that. And going, well, why, why, why is that? Why does it look like that? And I remember going home, driving home and still in the same area we passed. We'd just been surrounded by a moor a lot of the week. And then I saw this like really beautiful woodland right beside the road and it was surrounded by a tall fence and uh, after a week of moor and peat I thought why is that woodland fenced off I would have really liked to have gone in that woodland while I was here so then I suddenly something just clicked and I, I didn't I didn't know I didn't know why this woodland was fenced off I didn't know why it had a really high fence I assumed it was to stop people like me <laughs> going in and then I just had questions around or just that realization of going wow I haven't actually seen trees this week there's really not been a lot of them why why is that so that kind of I guess that kind of kicked off this journey and then I went off to do like a master's in sustainable rural development partly because I wanted to retrain in something that I felt I could be equally as passionate about I was really really interested in deer management um, in relation to that course but unfortunately that module was taken out of the course and it was um, made into its own qualification so I kind of started this course and went oh I can't do the thing I really wanted to do but that didn't matter because there was so much more going on within it and so much other learning to do and also deer were a huge part of that anyway because it's such a big part of the conservation question and um, so I really started to Real, I well, I, I was being told and I was learning that the landscape that I'd been looking at while I was away in, in the Northwest Highlands wasn't 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 that habitat at its potential. That it was being maintained that way. It was being kept that way. Um, you know, for example, in Cape Wrath, it benefited that there wasn't um huge woodland there. You know, all those the, the landscape needed or was being kept that way. It's also peatland, I should say. So that has its own um, things <laughs> going on. Um, but I was learning that actually in a lot of these environments, they we misinterpret them as being just the way the land is, but we also interpret them as being bleak. So I was interested in that sort of, um, that dynamic that how can this be bleak but also be interpreted as being sort of a beautiful Scottish wilderness and then at the same time being kept for the forest specific species so then I was learning about grouse and a little bit about grouse anyway in that habitat and and then it came on to like sporting estates and then it came on to like rewilded estates and just my knowledge started to grow and grow and I, I started to look at our landscapes differently 
and I started to look at in particular the landscapes that I grew up in differently um, and I realized that um, the land wasn't that way because that was its um, natural state it was kind of being maintained to be that way and that that kind of um that was a big realization and that that land is actually um degraded or could be viewed as degraded was another big big discovery so this place that's supposed to be so wild and beautiful and sort of romantic and it, and it's like oh it looks like this because we have lots of grouse and we have to we have to feed them and keep them in these large populations but also deer i should say i don't want to be too harsh on grouse it's deer as well <laughs> I think it's quite fascinating as a thing because as a I'm not from Scotland but uh, coming here you see I guess you say the the whole wilderness and you're like oh my god these spaces I come from Italy where it's massively overbuilt but that's another story but here it's like oh my god that looks amazing and then being told that oh my god that's something that is not really it's not natural <laughs> and just such a shock and I'm wondering like it's interesting to hear from you because even you didn't quite know it growing up so I wonder how many Scot people in the Highlands in general but in Scotland are aware of the fact that this is not really how it's supposed to be how much awareness is there yeah it's really it, it, it's fascinating because I think people don't sometimes just don't realize or they're, they're quite they're quite happy just to accept it as it is and, and there's value in that too I think but something it started to really challenge my I guess my kind of belief system and and what I thought was was a natural habitat or like the it's interesting you're talking about Italy and what you were what you were looking at and you, you know in Scotland we have or in the Highlands we have huge like pine plantations um you know that were put in like in the 70s and earlier and then later you know and, and I remember thinking that Oh, wow, great, loads of pine woodland. That's fantastic. Got so many, so loads of woodland. And you'd see these blobs of pine plantations on hills and you'd, and you'd think, oh, great. And then I realised, ah, the landowner was given money to do that. Or, you know, they did that because of this kind of uh, economic driver. And that wasn't, that didn't happen naturally. And actually it's not benefiting biodiversity either. And then realizing that, oh, all these trees so close together does this thing, or that's why those woods are quite scary and dark, or you know, and, and starting to starting to realize that there's there's an alternative that can exist. So it, it keeps happening, like there's constantly these little things that I realize that I've just accepted for so long as oh, the beautiful highlands, and then you go, oh, hang on, this could actually be better. That there could be more biodiversity and it could it could benefit a habitat more and i think it's quite fascinating the research process that you go through the different people that you speak to there's such a wide there's such a diversity in terms of conservation and different perspectives so can i just ask you a bit about how you went on selecting let's say the people that you actually met for the research and how did it develop for you as a as a process? I guess that kind of came from who seemed quite accessible, actually. So like um, Peter Cairns at The Big Picture, um, he'd already held a seminar, uh, seminar, symposium, sorry, a conference even, not a symposium, <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I was very aware that he could be quite an accessible person uh, and he was and he was fantastic and we had such a great conversation and he even took me through Glenn Feshy, which I really, really appreciated. Um, and then I guess there was kind of a snowballing <clears throat> thing from there. So kind of asking him, who do you think I should speak to next? And that's kind of how it came about. So um, he suggested some of the other people that I met with. But then also my network in, in theatre, there's a kind of growing movement now of artists that are wanting to talk about climate, are wanting to talk about ecology and sustainability. So there's uh, some of my network had already actually as part of my attachment I'd asked if I could accompany them to Banff um, in Perthshire for example where they have the beavers I didn't know we had beavers in Banff until um, I came across um, this network so it was really through a mix of my connections but then also reaching out to people and then that snowballing um, technique of having people recommended to me so this big big conservation charities that I don't I didn't approach at all actually um, which includes the John Muir Trust and Trees for Life who are I think fantastic organizations and um, I guess I, I wanted to find those people that were impacting some of the places that I had a connection to, such as the Cairngorms and Cairngorms Connect. And, and because of where they are, they have a really interesting um, dynamic to deal with, which is the interrelationship between ecology, um, rural economy and tourism as well. So all those things sit on top of each other within the, the national park, but then also within what is the Cairngorms Connect partnership. And then, um, so I really wanted to understand how those things work. How do they manage all those different elements? You know, that's very different from Alladale, who are, you know, in the, in the North Highlands again. Um, but they, they aren't part of like a touristy area, like a real tourist route. Uh, like they're off, they're off the beaten track a wee bit. So they don't, they don't have the same difficulties or dilemmas or balances to strike and um, because for me I felt that this this question around conservation and rewilding I really wanted to understand the role of people within that because it's crucial for me that um, that there's still a conversation around people because we are part of that ecological system we are not separate from it and us thinking we're separate from it is how we've gotten into the problem in the first place. Yeah and you talk about yeah the role of people and the fact that um, I think there's quite a, a bit of a gets political there's a, some controversy in between like different movements but also the role of people within the rewilding movement and how rewilding the conservation in general can benefit the local people so I know that some people are maybe some locals don't know in terms of what their information is or um, but some people are instead against um, that sort of movement because I think that that will be mean less land for the people so can you tell me a bit more about what you find out during your search about discussing is absolutely fascinating as a as a topic Sure. So I guess land management as a whole or land ownership is very divisive in Scotland and um, because of our history with um, depopulation, mass depopulation. 
um, and also cultural cleansing. Um, so, for example, mainland uh, Scotland losing a lot of its um, Gaelic-speaking community. Um, so because of that, we have a very difficult relationship to what is done with land, and we're very cautious around it. And sporting estates, but also rewilding estates, can uh, be in a position or find themselves in a position where they might, uh, might be a driver for depopulation. Um, so there's, I'm interested in that thing of, well, is this a good estate or a bad estate? And actually through writing the book and doing the research, what I was finding was that it's not as simple as that because you can have uh, an estate that does ecological restoration, which is another term for rewilding, which some people prefer, where they, they might be doing that, but actually what they're also doing is they're uh, taking back the housing on an estate and repurposing it for luxury accommodation or repurposing it for holiday lets. And actually the workers, they might be estate workers or like just local people that maybe live on that land and they're being pushed out and, and told, well, you know, this is a green estate now, we've got to prioritise these other things and, and make money. So it's 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 the economic drivers um, that are coming back. <laughs> like it's kind of the same economic drivers about how to make land productive if it's like agriculturally not productive land. Um, so I think that's where the suspicion and cynicism can come from. And I completely get it, I see it, I feel it. Um, but it's not just like green estates that do it. It's just that I think people have this perception that we all should be benefiting from the object objectives of a green estate. And actually they are the same, the same, um, they are subject to the same sort of land ownership model that, that sporting estates are or and they do the same things and have the same hierarchy and um, that exists so so we still have the same set of problems um so i think uh, peter keynes i remember he said to me like rewilding is 90 percent about people and i kind of thought oh great he knows what what uh you know, he knows his priorities and people are important in this movement and da 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 da. And then I kind of realized that actually what Peter has to deal with, and a lot of people within the movement, is um, people that don't live in the area having a lot of opinions on it <laughs> and, and sort of slinging mud and um, maybe bringing up things that aren't relevant to, to the time that we're living in now um, or just being misinformed or not not having the right, um, yeah, not having the right information. So he's had to spend a lot of time undoing a lot of that work. Um, like, you know, we, we there's still this topic of um, the release of wolves in the Highlands and that's, that's not a thing. Um, at the moment, you know, having spoken to Paul Lister, if he wanted to make it a thing, he, he could go off and do that. You know, he's not asked the government um, and you would need to. <laughs> so it's it's this kind of people hold on to certain things that they maybe find challenge their belief system. Um, and those are the things that become really difficult and uh, divisive and, and sort of hot, if you like.
Yeah, and I'm wondering if with your book here, um, and in general, what's the role of the arts within this process of communicating what the actual um, goals of the conservation movements are? Do you think that with your book as well, you wanted to um, share a bit more what the views are, get it to a wider audience as well? I guess coming at it from the perspective of uh, an artist, I don't have any skin in the game as they say like I don't I don't have an estate I don't live on an estate I'm not in tied house and I'm not employed in that in that economy I'm in a totally separate uh, economy so it felt like I can I can offer something here because I'm not tied to one perspective or one view or um, any polit- any political party or, or anything it was just I'm a Highlander and I this is how I feel about this and as an artist I'm able to um, well I like to think that as artists we're able to communicate difficult things in accessible in accessible ways um, and I was aware that I navigate uh life the world you know geographically or emotionally I navigate it through um culture and art and cultural buildings and and those sorts of things so so actually what I was finding or really appreciating was when I had come across artists that were touching upon these really difficult issues and just acknowledging something that wasn't or couldn't be acknowledged within the debate so like one of those things that came up was um like ecological grief and climate grief and I really felt I was starting to feel like actually there's a real place for that I feel in rewilding and in the rewilding movement and for me I felt that's where people could exist that these these places these spaces which are are being used to improve biodiversity that they could they could actually hold that space for us to to grieve and to I guess to recalibrate our relationship with nature and our surroundings and artworks were kind of helping to do that as well by by being kind of a placeholder um like there was the, the memorial or the yeah the memorial work for the beavers that have been shot under the newer legislation that that had taken place at Banff and I was really grateful for those things to have happened like just to acknowledge that this debate isn't just between like scientists and um, landowners or land managers like there, there is actually a huge swathe of our um, society people that engage in nature that are experiencing something very very difficult and that's increasing every day and becoming harder and harder to manage and actually we really need to find those spaces where we can grieve and we can uh, reflect on our relationship to nature and what we actually need and who can provide that for us. No absolutely and in terms of your process of writing this book do you think that that kind of like helped you in terms of managing your own uh, your own ecological grief in that sense? In a sense, maybe it did. Um, I think I understand now my that for me to work through that grief, I, I needed to understand the landscapes that I was looking at and I needed to understand the issues as well. And that has, that has helped me. 
um, in some respects. Um, it, but in other respects, it hasn't because the issue just feels so enormous, you know. But now I know that recycling, although I do it, recycling is not the thing that makes me feel closer to nature, <laughs> like, or, you know, that nourishes me in that way. So, you know, I can do the recycling, that's no problem. But then actually what I really need is to, you know, as as Kathy in the book kind of puts it, is just to move gently through a landscape and not demand anything of that place and just just be there and and accept it. Like you mentioned Kathy just now and I'm wondering well there's many layers in this in this book as well, but uh, of course uh, one of the main uh, one of the main subjects is the deer's talk, the deer's talk in the deer call. So I wanted to ask you a bit about your experience and uh, yeah, where did the interest come from? If you can uh, tell me a bit more about that. So I suppose the deer stalking or the deer cull, deer cull in particular, is a is a really important act of conservation in Scotland. Um, and I was feeling that I really wanted to be doing something um, much more uh, physical and grounded in our envi- environment. But tree planting just wasn't it wasn't appealing to me for whatever reason. I, I think because the context sometimes that you have to that's available to go and do that was too limiting. Um, but I really felt like, oh, maybe I could go off and do stalking. Maybe maybe that could be something. And it, it, it also, you know, planting a tree doesn't feel particularly controversial. There are, of course, contexts where it is controversial. However, with, with stalking, it felt like another one of those divisive topics. Um, and quite often, it, you know, people maybe would already have a view on if they could do it or couldn't do it. And what does that mean if you if you support conservation in Scotland, but but you wouldn't do a hindstock? You know, and I, I chose hindstocking in particular because there's no trophy aspect to hindstocking. It's also the most effective form of population control is to go for the hinds and not the stags. Um, it's also said to be much harder <laughs> stag stalking, but I'm, I'm not going to go stag stalking to work that out. Um, so I was just, I was kind of inexplicably drawn to it. And then as my research continued, I realised that my connection to the practice of stalking was much deeper than I'd actually imagined. Um, and there was something really um quite incredible about that I think for me for me to discover and it was after the stock uh, that I actually discovered that and I wonder what it would have been like to know that at the time and how it would have informed my time on the hill and what I did or what I was looking out for um but it was an extraordinary extraordinary thing to do but I wouldn't reveal um anything about it really because it feels like that's quite a a fundamental aspect of of the book and the discussion within it. So yeah, uh, talking about uh, deer stalking, uh, one thing that is quite interesting that you talk about a lot is the fact the role of women in deer stalking. And uh, can I just have a wee chat about with, with this about you? Because I think it's just very, I think it's a perspective that is sometimes people don't consider the fact that whereas um, there's more of a conversation being brought up now about the fact that. Uh, equipment is not really fit for women either so 
how uh yeah how did you find uh, well the people that you spoke to but in general the role of women within the um deer stalking world so i i guess the first thing is that i'm not a hunter um i'm not interested in the culture of that i've never been drawn to it um certainly like this the more this kind of sporting side of it no no not for me that's not my not my vibe at all but deer management felt really different but I was very aware that it would always be male dominated and I was kind of aware of that just growing up in the highlands like you know I went to school with um uh other kids that grew up uh further outside of Inverness and they they were more attached to an estate and like the I would always kind of hear about the boys um going out shooting or um they would go grouse beating although girls can do grouse beating too that's not like that you know because they're it's just they need young people they prefer young people to do it because you know whatever so that's kind of the first thing and then I I actually came up across a book by uh, a writer called Portia Simpson and she wrote about her education around deer management and how she went off to become a stalker um, and I loved it I absolutely loved this account and um, by her I don't think she would maybe say that she was giving like a feminist perspective but she was definitely giving a perspective um, um, from that of being a woman just uh, by virtue of being a woman <laughs> um, so all the difficulties that, that she came across um, so I was really drawn to that because I felt because uh, I'm quite a petite woman um, and I'm mathematic and that I would probably find it quite hard um, to do something like that on the hill so I'd, I'd kind of worked out that it probably wouldn't be my vocation I don't think I could ever do that and um, after reading Portia's book which is maybe not what she had intended <laughs> maybe she wanted to encourage more women into it I don't know um, but it was a very real it was very truthful and very realistic so you know thank you Portia so when it came to when it came to stalking like I went to Carrower and you know I, I detail in the book why I chose Carrower but what I didn't look for when I was on the search for an estate to hind Stockholm, I didn't, I didn't have like a woman stalker or, um, yeah, a deer stalker as part of my criteria because I just thought, oh, there probably aren't any, um, and sometimes the states just aren't very forthcoming about that that information, and um, because they don't need to be probably, so. So uh, I I did the stock, and I guess when it after I'd gone through the process of the book, I, I or during it, I was reflecting on that actually I didn't need to go out with with women to experience it in a particular way. I'd, I'd quite like to in, in the future. I think that'd be quite quite interesting as a com comparison. But then it meant that when I was doing the book, I wanted to meet women stalkers. That felt really important. Um, I wanted to understand what it was like for them working in this very, very male-dominated environment and also quite a, um, a lot of um, machismo, is that the right word? Machismo? 
macho machoism <laughs> um so I wanted to get a sense of what that that kind of felt like so you know I only got that sense through my one hind stop but then also just conversations with with women I, I don't know what it's like for that to be an actual job and your kind of a lifestyle as well but what was coming out of those conversations was just that kit you know rifles jackets even the more um technical things like the um the argos like the the vehicles they have to use they're all for men and they're all built for men and you know there's other books that kind of go into into that like the invisible women book i've forgotten the name of the author but that was really a really valuable book where you know they talk about universal man so everything is made for the universal man and not the universal woman so you know I was finding that being in the Argo was a physically really horrible experience and um, and then obviously for women stalkers the kit just doesn't fit right and it means that it's a hindrance and it makes them feel bad at their job when they're not there's no reason for women to be bad at these things you know Kathy was telling me that women are often better at hunting and um, which was uh, I don't know if that was surprising to me but it was I welcomed that um so kit not fitting rifles not fitting right and the difficulty being that when they would go to find outdoor jackets for example pockets there wouldn't be enough pockets or the pockets wouldn't be in the right places or things would have a waist when you didn't need a waist you know and it was much more oh this is for sure this is when women are accompanying men on the hill so it's really telling you that there's not a place for you here this isn't for you like you've got to fit into the the sort of the male versions of these things you've got to adopt these characteristics you've got to become this other thing in order to do it that's that's kind of the semiotics of all of it um, your role is something different. You can watch. Um, so that was, again, super, super interesting to me. Um, and then obviously there is kind of, there can be misogyny, um, the kind that you do associate with male-dominated environments where they're not challenged. Um, and that, that was difficult to hear, but again, not surprising. So I think like, with ecofeminism, and when I was looking into that, I, I think one thing that stuck with me was around um, trying to, not trying to ignore those things, not trying to necessarily change them, you know, not do like a pink and shrink version of things, but to actually like subvert it and, and almost have a conversation around it. Um, and that felt really important to me. So I kind of hope like hindsight would start to, would introduce that conversation then to <clears throat> a lot of the male counterparts of like Kathy and, and Megan, who were the, the women stalkers within the book and, and kind of, yeah, just bring that conversation to the front a little bit and also say, look, women might be interested in this, but they don't feel they can, they have like a place at the moment. And like the group that Kathy and Megan manage, which is also called Hindsight, that to me is a really important space. And, you know, you can argue around whether it's needed or not, but Kathy and Megan identified that women, um, women learn differently from men and they prioritise different things. Um, 
and those things need to be acknowledged and used to our benefit not used against us yeah absolutely that sounds great do you think that maybe with the having social media and being able to use them now there's can be maybe a wider reach for figures like kf and uh just having them more out there and uh, having more visibility meaning that maybe more people are going to be like okay i can actually do this it's not something that is completely against uh against all rules it's something that yeah it's fine <laughs> yeah i think so i think those things are are really helpful you know i still follow and i will follow lot, uh, women that i come across that are are working in land management in in any form and it's I find it really valuable to see them at work and see what their their lives are like and how they prioritize things and they don't need to be particularly feminist you know in in how they speak about what they're doing or or even eco-feminist and um, I do I do really enjoy seeing that that work happen seeing women in those spaces and um, because it's important and maybe if i was you know if i'd grown up at a time where social media was big and those women had been there maybe i would have you know gone into that sector fully and that would have become my life and i would be a deer stalker i don't know i quite like the thought of this sort of little tough jenna stalking the hills (laughs) like fighting for conservation (laughs) it's a nice alternative maybe I think it's good. Like, why didn't he make the cover? Of, uh, uh, by the way, I love the cover of the book. I think it's great. Um, but uh, why didn't you put yourself like on the book on the cover? Well, I would normally do that in theatre, like have me on the the poster of whatever show. So when I, when the cover was revealed to me, I was a bit like, oh, it's it's nice, but I'm not on it. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be hugely inappropriate for me to be on it. That'd be very strange. I'm happy just with my little author photo. That's fine. <laughs> Perfect. No, it is uh, the the graphics did a fantastic job there. I'm I'm always on the the content is paramount, but a good job from the graphics just makes such a difference. Um, I think I have just another couple of questions. So uh, one would be if you wanted to leave the reader with a particular, with something in particular, if you wanted to send a particular message that you want to pass after they finish the book. I guess I would just hope that uh, people are left with the, the desire to learn more for themselves, a desire to reflect on the habitats and landscapes they're surrounded by and also discover what what they can do for their their environment whether that's just moving um quietly through it and i guess also this i would like people to be able to listen to the conversations that are happening without taking a side and without uh, creating or sticking rigidly to a certain belief system. I feel like we would get further if we could all listen to each other more and, and see the different perspectives because they all offer something of value, even if the thing wouldn't work in your context 
it, it can work in other contexts. Um, so I, I, I would hope the takeaway would be that people would um, be more open to the debates around land management and conservation. Awesome. And in terms of if someone decided to um, start uh, be, start getting involved into these conversations and they wanted to start getting informed about what's happening on their doorstep, but also in general within the conservation movement, what would be the suggestions you would give for them to where where should they go to start getting involved in this? Well, um, I would say just checking in with organisations like uh, the John Muir Trust, because they have sites all over Scotland. They also have um, volunteer opportunities, as does Nature Scott, I think, who are kind of our big agency, conservation agency, environmental agency, sorry. And also Trees for Life, um, who I think are a really fantastic organisation and they're going to be opening their rewilding centre at uh, Dundregan hopefully this year and there's also going to be um, I believe there's going to be like a strong uh, uh, presence of Gaelic within that um, so Gaelic interpretation which is hugely exciting so I think those are those are good places to start um, I'm sure if, if I maybe I was working for a rewilding organisation I'd be like mm, start by looking in your own back garden or <laughs> I don't know um, maybe that's true, but I don't know. Maybe, uh, yeah, check in with those places, and then if you want to volunteer, there's there, there are plenty of opportunities, and you can kind of like hop from agency to agency and see what's out there. And um, but also start with what makes you curious. You know, are you are you more into birds? Are you more into the peat? Are you into deer? Um, or wildflowers? You know, there's some great schemes even around like the planting road burges with um, wildflowers and all those things but um, yeah follow your curiosity what what makes you feel good what makes you feel like you're um, nourishing yourself my favorite word at the moment nourishing amazing and uh, I just wonder if you have any books to recommend since we're a book podcast apart from of course your book uh, which is I think a really good starting point in terms of touching so many different points like it opens the door and you're like in the end you're like oh god I want to know more about this and this and this I need to start studying uh, in a nice way in the nicest way possible uh, but uh, yeah do you have any books that maybe you would recommend to people to um, read and uh, just having a better knowledge a deeper knowledge of of the issues sure so I guess uh, George Monbiot's Feral was my my way in to all of this I think um certainly opened up my eyes um there are there are lots and lots that I haven't actually read yet um oh my goodness um I really love uh Kathleen Jamie <laughs> her books like surfacing um Flight lines. Um, there's another one I can't quite remember. Um, they're all really good as well. And actually, I've recently talked and met with um, Patrick Laurie, who wrote Native, which was around his, his life in Galloway and starting his farm. 
Um, so I'm reading that at the moment and I'm really, really getting into that. And he raises lots of really interesting um, questions at the moment anyway in the book around um, like Scottish identity and our relationship to nature and farming in particular. So some really lovely, meaty topics coming up in there at the moment. So I'd recommend that even though I haven't finished it yet. <laughs> Amazing. No. So hopefully the find the the end of the book is uh, equally inspiring. <laughs> I'm sure it will be. But uh, no, that was fantastic to have you on today. So thank you so much for all the wonderful words and uh, yeah, best of luck with the, uh, your day and the rest of your work. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Wow, uh, there's a lot to learn from this conversation and uh, this is absolutely a very complex but fascinating issue. So if you want to read more, very kindly Jenna provided a list of books mentioned in the episode or in the book or other recommended reads uh, if you want to get started uh, learning more about rewilding. So please, you'll find all these information in the show notes. And I've also popped a couple of links to other resources you can use to get started in your learning journey. Um, I hope you enjoyed this episode and this will in a way leave you wanting to know more or be part of the needed conversation that really needs to happen. So I hope you like the show. Please leave us a review or share it with other bibliophiles. Uh, if you want to get in touch with ideas, feedback or recommendations or even just to say hi, please drop us an email at northernbiblesphere.pod at gmail.com or follow us on our social channels. Farewell until the next time.